0: for every cold play, there's 10 other cold plays that all got signed in the same year. You know, yeah, there's a lot of broken dreams in the business. I was nowhere,
1: you know, I had, I'd lost my record deal, massively in debt, and no obvious signs that I would ever be able to recover that, you know, because a career looked to be pretty much finished. We didn't have that such a big launch pad as maybe some of our bands did at the time, but we're still here, so we did something right. You know, I came from Paddy so was from day one said, I'm an artist. And I would say, we we are artists and we make music that we consider to be art. I spent 10 years of my life with no money trying to get a record deal was so I was my own boss and I could do what I want. This seemed to be my natural comfort zone.
0: There is no formula to having a hit record. It happens and it's probably 60% luck, 30% talent, and 10% timing.
1: I think the idea is to remain yourself, but stay open to being influenced.
0: Hello and welcome to the Art of Longevity. I'm your host, Keith Joplin. Brett Anderson of Suede once said that all successful artists have navigated four career stages. The struggle, the stratospheric rise to the top, crash to the bottom, and the renaissance. On The Art of Longevity, we talk to artists who spent decades in the music industry and discover what the journey has been like for them and how have they experienced each of Brett's four stages. Along the way, there are some great stories of the ups and downs and the roundabouts of a career in music, insights for fans and aspiring musicians. This is The Art of Longevity. The Art of Longevity is presented with Bowers & Wilkins, the renowned British premium audio brand. This is episode one of season four, in which I speak with Norman Blake and Raymond McGinley of Indie Rock Legends Teenage Fan Club. Welcome to The Art of Longevity.
1: Hello there. Hello. Good to be here. I hope you're feeling longevitous. Long, long, yeah, longevitous. Uh, I was trying to think of another word around longevity. But, long in yeah. the truth. Yeah, <laughs> long in the it. <laughs> Well, it's
0: great to have you on the show. I was trying to get hold of you guys a while back. So you are about to go on tour, aren't you? This is not a dream. Actually, technically, we have started. We
2: played in Glasgow last night, first night of the tour. But yes, yeah, we're about to go out on the road for the next five and a half weeks, which is something we haven't done for a long time because of the pandemic. The album that we're touring now was released almost a year ago uh, when we didn't get a chance to tour it properly. So this is us, we're going to get that opportunity now. So we're really pleased about that, as you can imagine. And uh, yeah, and it was really good playing again last night. You know, it's like I say, it's been a while.
0: Yeah, because this tour has been aborted, what, three? Or maybe even four times. I've I- I lost count.
1: Yeah, because originally th- this tour was meant to happen in October 2020. And it's been rescheduled three times or whatever. It's crazy thinking that some people these dates were doing will have bought a ticket for it more than two years ago. I think it originally went on sale early 2020. So uh, hopefully they haven't lost them. Well, you played
0: Glasgow last night. So a kind of homecoming gig, but in the imaginatively named SWG3. And you hadn't played there before. So what's it like playing in a new venue in
1: Glasgow? It's something we haven't done for a while. Even not just in your hometown, you know, there's lots of lots of times we go on tour and we think, oh yeah, we haven't played that venue before, then we realise we have, it's just changed the <laughs> name. So to play, you know, a place in Glasgow we've never played before was really unusual. It's a nice venue, but a bit of a concrete box under the ground, mm-hmm. you know, So, but uh, it was kind of quite brutalist in its architectural style. Um, loud on stage yeah, it was good. as well. loud on stage yeah
2: loud on stage yeah. the show, I mean the show was fun and it was good playing again but it was really loud yeah it was a good some ringing ears backstage afterwards but yeah novelty value and playing a new venue
0: well Norman as you said you're touring this album Endless Arcade which is now a year old I guess that's unusual because normally you'd finish a record and then just take it straight out on the road so I mean what's the feeling about this record now I mean have you already moved on because I know you've got new songs out already Sure, I mean, I think you're always moving forward, you know, and looking
2: to write new songs. But we have, but the thing about this record is that we haven't really had the chance to play the songs live. So making the LPs is one thing, but then touring them and playing them live, you know, that's a kind of different experience for us, and we've not had the opportunity to do that. So
1: in a way, it's easier to move on from it because me, and Norman spoke about this, and the other guys as well. Around about the time when the album came out, we didn't go on tour. We speak to each other and say, I, f- "I feel really kind of depressed. This is really weird." the album comes out, then you go on tour and we've been doing that for 30 years or more and not doing it felt really weird but also the going on tour bit lets you move on from the album in a way as well. So we haven't quite arrived at that point yet but yeah, we're always thinking, you know, after you finish recording something, you're always thinking of what you might do next.
0: The new song I left the light on, was that recorded at the same time or is that a new song?
2: So that was recorded um, afterwards and but it was actually written when we were Mixing the last record, the rock. we mixed some of it at Rockfield and we worked on some of it at Rockfield. And I, I just happened to write, the, the, so they've got a really nice piano there. So it's not the Bohemian Rhapsody piano, but it's been on a number of other Queen recordings and it's a great piano. So it's always I always like to mess around with that when, when I'm down there. And I think it was, we were just doing a bit of mixing. I just went into the room and sat down for a bit and came up with the idea. So in a way, it's a nice segue from the last album to the next lot of work that we'll do. Even though we are predominantly touring Endless Arcade, it's nice to have something new to offer as well that people haven't heard. So, you wrote that on the piano? Yeah, I just sat down at the piano and was messing around and I came up with the, the melody idea and the lyric actually pretty much at the same time. And then we went back and recorded it there. So, it, was, um, so it, was, it felt quite nice to do that. And it sort of, in a way, it kind of, we feel as though that kind of ties the last album to the next thing that we, we do, in a way. You know, it's a kind of little
0: bridge there. Do you think you'll be doing more writing on the piano in the future? I mean, when did you start writing that way?
2: You know, I've written other things on the piano. I've always, you know, I played piano when I was young, actually, but, you know, didn't do many grades. But, you know, when I was, you know, as a schoolboy, and I've always liked playing and I can play a bit. I mean, I'm not particularly proficient on it, but um, I think sometimes nice uh, as a songwriter to write on a different instrument, you know, on guitar. You tend to find yourself going to the same sort of chord sequences Ways that I try to get around that is, and I think Raymond does this too, some would maybe detune, try a different tuning sometimes, or you know, stick a cap on, or sometimes even try and write on a Nashville tuning. And it was just another way of sort of, so it's just another way of writing because you'll maybe come up with different chord sequences. So it's not a kind of a conscious decision to try and write more on piano. It just happened to be that there was a piano there, actually. And in fact, there probably wasn't a guitar there.
0: You're right. I mean, some of my favourite. Albums have been done that way, like classic guitar based artists who then decided to write on the piano and just gives you a completely different feel.
1: There is a surprising amount of the creative process making music that is based on what is available to you Mm -hmm. at the time and making use of what's there. You know, someone might say, Oh, why did you decide to go for that sound on the record with the organ or the Hammond organ? It's like, Well, there was a nice one in the studio, so we used it. You know, it's not like these things. You know, I'm sure, Norman, you weren't thinking, hmm, maybe I'll go and write a song on the piano. No, but not at In sure the all. studio, yeah. there's a piano there, you sit down at it, you start using it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah. I'm sure that was, I'm sure there was something where, uh, like Gary Newman and the Chibwee Army record only ended up with the mini-mog on it because there was one in the studio.
0: Yeah, I think he told us that.
1: You can't imagine it without that. Yeah, but yeah. It's yeah. it like the Beatles using Mellotron or whatever, you know, it's just because it's there you think oh that sounds cool use it you know it doesn't all come from a place of predetermination
0: if what's been used around you is a piano that was once played by Freddie Mercury I guess you can't
1: yeah that's that's great I mean of course that's been there
2: for a long long time loads of people have played that piano and uh, you know um, lots of great music's been written and recorded using that piano it is a particularly nice piano it's a Beckstein and uh, it sounds really great, you know. It sounds really, really nice. It's just that Rockfield's a great studio. We we love going to Rockfield. We've got a really good relationship with the Ward family who own and run the studio. I think actually it was the first residential recording studio in the world, I believe. And Kingsley is a, a, an amazing guy, real character.
1: And you know, I don't know whether Kingsley Ward at Rockfield has done a proper interview exploring his knowledge of the process of making music because he has. For someone who was in a studio with Joe Meek, talking about even the technical processes and stuff, his stories are are amazing actually. And we always ask him questions about stuff and he it maybe it's something he hasn't thought about. And we were like, When you were in the studio with Joe Meek, were you wearing headphones? <laughs> you know, and he'd be like, Eh, no, no, we weren't. We he just had the door open a little bit and you could hear it from the control room or whatever. Yeah. You know, you know, he told us a story about how it was, when he had his band, the uh, Charles Kingsley creation, uh, going to see EMI, this whole long convoluted story, going to see EMI in the 60s. And he wanted to go and see Nori Paramour, who was a producer. And they were disappointed because they saw this guy called George Martin. And they think, oh yeah, he does the comedy stuff. You know, I think this must be pre-Beatles. Yeah, 1960 uh, or something, or 61. Yeah, yeah. Saying, oh, yeah, we were really disappointed. We saw it. we were in George Martin's office, you know, and I think they, they didn't use the band, but they said, could you boys do some recording for us if we send some artists down to see you, you know, and I think that's kind of how it all got started. But yeah, but Kingsley has some amazing stories, but I think we probably, people probably ask him about all the usual things that he said, you know, and it's the same thing me and Norman did and stuff. Sometimes you end up, the stuff you forget that you've done because you end up, there's certain things you talk about you've spoken about them all before but Ian Kingsley's got, it'd be great if someone could sit him down and ask him about a lot of stuff maybe that he's kind of forgotten about and no one's asked him about before because he's, he's worked with so many people whether it's like Hawkwind or whatever you know he's, he's got so many stories
0: The Art of Longevity is presented with Bowers & Wilkins the premium British audio brand Bowers & Wilkins loudspeakers are trusted by some of the world's leading recording studios, including Abbey Road. It's a pleasure to have Bowers & Wilkins supporting the show. Didn't I read once you tried to do a gig without guitars?
1: We did, yeah. We did three nights, at, I think it was the Camden Underworld, and we did electric guitars, acoustic guitars, and no guitars. We thought, let's do a gig with no guitars, and we managed about I think we did about five songs with no guitars. And we had, remember normally we had someone playing the Saw. That's right. Musical Saw. Yeah. Uh, And, yeah, we had like Omnicord and I think we managed four or five songs and we was like, listen, that's as much as we can do, you know, but yeah, yeah, we did, we did not
0: buy We had five songs in, it's it's pretty good. Yeah. So what did you enjoy playing last night? Personally, the new songs as, um, a musician
2: whatever going the other songs the older ones we kind of know inside out that doesn't mean we still enjoy playing them we do enjoy playing them but uh, you know with a couple of the newer ones there's still a couple of things for them you know not 100% sure of where what the where the chord changes go
1: and yeah just i think just the freshness of playing new songs is what i why i enjoy doing you know it's funny sometimes the first show of the tour you're still kind of in the mode of you're kind of thinking about it a little bit as you as you go along you know but it felt there wasn't as much a, of that as I expected. It felt really comfortable. It felt mm. it felt really good. And the new
0: songs are really great and I think there's something in the water at the minute because a lot of bands that have been around for a few decades and a couple of them I've had on the show are just making really really strong records. There is a the thing I think people are more
2: accepting of older artists nowadays, you know, in the way that you know that you haven't been sent off to the old folks home when you're 40. Um, and the way that you were in the past, you know, when I was young and getting into music, the punk rock thing was happening. And, you know, um, that would be like 19, maybe with the mid, late 70s. So you think by that time, Paul McCartney and the Beatles and all those people from that generation, they were all in their mid-30s at that point. But they were sort of seen as being past it and over the hill, whatever. In other forms of art, people think that artists develop and get better or hone their craft as they get older. But people don't think of music in that way. It's so obviously, you know, you're good when you're young and then you can, anything any of that is gone. But I, I see the other way. I mean, I, I'm certainly in terms of being a musician, I'm a better musician than I was, you know, and, and, I, and I think people are thinking about it differently you now. They won't dismiss all the music coming from all the artists you know, in a way that they might have in the past.
0: Yeah, well, as you say, you know, you, you get better at the craft and, I mean, creativity ebbs and flows and I guess the muse comes and goes, but you're not having that problem at the moment. You know, there's just some beautiful songs on there.
1: And I think we do look at it like, why shouldn't we be doing things now that's as good or if not better than anything we've done in the past? You know? you know, know. And that thing is Norman saying, I think people generally are more accepting of the possibility that just because someone's been on the go for over 30 years, they shouldn't still be doing something that's fresh, as it, as it were, or whatever. Plus, the other thing, we don't try to pretend to be the people we were in 1989 when the band started. We're happy being who we are now, writing songs as we are now, making music, as as the people that we are now. We're not trying to pretend to be those guys in their twenties. So I think if you do things and you're not trying to make it a pastiche of what you used to be, if it's genuine and in inverted commas, if your intentions in doing it are the same as your intentions ever were, and we kind of do it pretty much the way we've always done it. We we're certainly not thinking oh God, we better do another album. We, we love it. You know, the whole the process going at the studio, we still feel as excited about it as we ever did. And we don't approach it as kind of the same approach that we've always had. You just kind of go into that moment and you do what you feel like doing at the time. You know, it's really
0: interesting you, you say that because the thing is there's always a prevailing narrative around a band that's been around for a while. The narrative is you had a peak at some point for you guys would have been, you know, Grand Prix, Songs for Northern Britain, That's just the narrative that you read about. There's a whole bunch of narratives across your audience. I mean, I'm a fan of your recent albums. You know, if I go to play a teenage fan club album, it'll be anything from Howdy Since. I don't really go back to those albums very often at all.
1: The other thing as well is we have met people, young people, people in their early 20s, and they might only have heard their last album. They don't know anything else about us. You know, mm. so those narratives are not implanted in their brain. They've just, mm. well, I heard this song, you know, and I think a lot of younger people now are, they can get anything they want whenever they want and maybe are less uptight about liking something or, you know, so we have met people that are like, oh yeah, I don't know anything about that stuff you did in the 90s. I, I like the new record. Yeah. You know, that's always refreshing, but you kind of forget that because I think in yourself, we don't subscribe to the, So the narrative, that, as you say, some people might say, oh, they had that peak or whatever, but, you know, you, you are aware of all that. Yeah. And sometimes I think you have to kind of forget that and realize that as far as the average person likes our band and likes what we do, what we've done in the past, you kind of never really meet that average person because there's people out there that like what you do and you don't really know what they take from it, you know? It's good when you meet people and they say they pick up in songs that you maybe wouldn't think people would pick up on them as much. But people in the world outside the band, people have their own take on the albums that they like and the albums that they, not that they don't like, but people will, you know, choose the things that they happen, they want to interact with. And it's not always what you expect. So I think there are lots of different narratives. The problem is if someone wants to maybe write about the band or something and they don't have much time or whatever. They might go to some preconceived narrative. But yeah. definitely, I think there's, you know, there are lots of different things that exist in the, the minds of people that like all kinds of different music. And, some, and sometimes as well, it's like, you know, you go, there's things that you might have in the past, dismissed, you didn't like, and you go back to it years later and you find out that you love it
0: it's the the gift of hindsight and perspective i guess as well because you know when you've made a new record the other thing is you're obliged to believe in that record right and at the time your perspective is all focused on that so you need to give it some time before you look back and go okay yeah we weren't on it back then but but we're back on it now
2: yeah i think if you're confident about the music you've made then it's not difficult to go out and promote that, that music, you know? Um, and I suppose thinking about it, every band has, you know, their peak years and, you know, as an older band, you're never going to go back there. It's just, it's just not the way it works anyway. And, and that's kind of as it should be. Contemporary pop culture should be created by young people in a way, you know, there, there's, in a way you can sort of relax when you're an older artist. We can just do what we want now. We have no expectations, you know, We really, would love, like people to like the music we make. We'd like what we buy the music we make, come and see us. But, we're kind of happy where we are. You know, we just try to be honest and write good songs. That's all, that is our main objective, to make good sounding records and have good arrangements. And, you know, and we derive a lot of pleasure from that. If other people do, that's that's brilliant. But there's no sense or way that we, of us thinking about trying to be a big, successful band and a big hits because that is behind us. That's not going to happen. And that's fine. That's just
1: the way things are. It's all good. So whenever we make an album, we never thought, oh, we did that last album. People said that one was really good. We'll try and do something as good as that last album. Because everything we do, we think, we wouldn't let it out the door if we didn't think it was any good. But you also think, oh, yeah, you know, we, the next one is going to be different or better or whatever. But we're always just, we never really, we've tried never to refer back to what we've done before. We always want to just be who we are in that moment of what we do we don't get reflective on ourselves, or, you know, cause I think you can disappear down a rabbit hole of self delusion or narcissism or whatever doing that. We just kind of try and deal with what's in front of us, you know, and satisfy ourselves in that moment. We're doing the same thing in that respect since 1989. What about curating
0: a set list for the tour? How do you kind of go through that process when you've got so many albums and so many songs? To- well,
2: we're kind of conscious that people will be there who like certain albums and maybe not other ones they don't like so much or whatever. So we try to play something from each of the records. We are definitely trying to focus on the latest record, so we'll play, I think, five songs from the new album, something like that. And if we include the "Left the Light On" song, that's six things. So that's maybe a third of our set It was new new music, and then the rest we'll choose, you know, from across the the thirty years or whatever. There's pretty much something from every album there. And we do try to change it as well. You know, we'll, you know we are aware that people will go simple shows, shows sometimes. The good thing about being around a long time is that we have got lots of songs, you know, to choose from. Yeah. And it's nice for us to sometimes to maybe resurrect a song that hasn't been played live for 20 years. There are a couple of things that uh, I would like to play. One of Raymond's songs in particular that I'd like to do that we've spoken about, we haven't done yet. A song called Middle of the Road. Maybe
1: in this tour we can work through it in sound checks, who knows? Yeah. And I think and I think in terms of playing new songs, playing old songs, I think we've always been lucky with the people that have come to see us live. I feel like people do want to hear us doing new stuff. And we're lucky as well that we have never had like one big hit song or anything, or one thing that people have said, Oh, that's what the band are all about, and then this other stuff. You know, we've been quite lucky and the, the mix of things that we've done and the people that have come to see us seem like they, you know, we would sense on stage if you felt like people were getting bored or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, and that's the other thing as well, it's I think sometimes people who come to see you live are surprised how much we observe when we're on stage of the audience and people's facial expressions and, you know, some people, sometimes people in audiences don't realise that the people on stage can see them <laughs> and do actually <laughs> look at them you can know,
2: see them like, very well. Normally, yeah, we can, we can see them
1: very well, and actually, there's something about that moment that you do pick up on. Sometimes there's someone standing right down the front, and they're kind of yawning, and and they look. You know. <laughs> it certainly shows you feel drawn towards someone, you know. Yeah, but, let's uh, let us let yeah.
0: let's speed this one up. This guy's bored. <laughs> yeah. yeah,
1: but you know, but I think we would know if people were not digging it, you know? And I think we've been lucky that people seem to want to go with whatever we want to do. And I think we're lucky in that respect.
0: You know, when we're there in the audience, we're not thinking that way. Of course, yeah, there's a relationship with the band and the audience every night, and it's different. And that's why you get those really magic nights is where something happens, right, that just hasn't happened on the other nights. Absolutely.
2: Because here's the thing, because obviously we at times members of an audience as well. So I know that when I'm watching someone I kind of know what the, th- the people on stage are thinking, but I know that they're kind of thinking the same things that we're thinking when we're on stage, looking at people, looking at people's reactions. Sometimes maybe looking around the room, and i found myself doing this, you look around and you think, that's a really unusual light fitting over there. <laughs> you know, whether you <laughs> midway through a song or whatever, you know, it's the one thing you do lose about being a musician on stage is that we kind of know how it all works in the background. And I remember being young and going to see bands I didn't know any of that stuff. There's something magical about that. I went to see The Clash a lot of times and, uh, you know, you just see them perform there and it's a real event. But now I know all the stuff that goes into putting that show on and, and, you know, and you kind of lose a bit of the magic as an audience member. Because I do go to see bands and I kind of look at it from a technical viewpoint as well sometimes. Oh, look at that, what's going on there? I wonder what's happened to the keyboard. It seems like they've lost the channel on that side of the keyboard <laughs> or whatever, you
1: know. I remember going to see The Who. The only time I've ever seen The Who, it was fairly recent years, I can't remember, it was kind of terrible because the guy, Simon, who's doing the monitors, we know him because we worked with Simon. When we go and see, even going to see The Who, you're going can, you can to see all the things behind The Wizard of Oz's curtain as well, you know, and uh, Roger Daltrey was going crazy, like with his, with his in-ear monitors, and he's like, Simon, Simon, I can't hear what I'm doing. And you could see Simon at the side of the stage, you know, and I was like, oh God, he's been Simon's been berated by Roger Daltrey in front of 10,000 people, and you're kind of... You know, I'm thinking about how Simon is feeling stand at the side of the stage. <laughs> you know, because you see it from that other from that other side of the thing. You know, so as Norman says, it does. Most people in audiences don't see it that way. Yeah. You know, we kind of, they see it from the other side, even when we are in the audience.
0: But I mean, Raymond, what you said earlier is really interesting because bands of longevity usually have one or two big songs and their career is attached to that song and the fans are attached to that song you don't really have that so you don't have that dilemma to face
1: no it's good there's certain certain things that we pretty much always play We'll play the concepts or play everything flows or because sometimes i meet people and we're not normally the same we don't like really talk about what we do if you meet someone that doesn't really know about the band but you might so are oh, you in the band? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Would I have heard any of your songs? You know, what's your big song? You know, And I'm like, no, nah, no, nah, I, d- I don't think you would know anything. It's kind of lucky in a way that we've done really pretty well. And we do, we've managed to keep doing this thing that we do. And we do it all over the world. But we have kind of flown under the radar <laughs> radar of most people's consciousness. You know, I think you either like the band and know about the band or you're indifferent to the band, really. I don't think about a band that people think, oh, them, I hate them. Most people would probably be like them. Who are they? <laughs> you know,
0: people know the name as well, and they're sometimes just not quite sure where to place you. They know you're important, and they know that you're from the '90s. The fans who listen to this will know, but then your story is interesting from a, a number of different perspectives. Right back at the start, it gets interesting already because you got together in '89. That was an interesting time for music. It's called the, the late 80s is pretty naff, and it was pre-grunge, pre pop. so there wasn't that whole revival. But there was something going on in Glasgow, though, wasn't there?
1: There was stuff happening in Glasgow, kind of 85, 86, in terms of, say, where me and Norman met, or met a lot of people who are into music. There was a club called Splash One, putting on bands, you know, uh, like, saw sonic use in 1985 or whatever it was a lot of bands came to glasgow and there was things happening maybe 85 86 by the time we were in the band called the boy hairdressers 86 87 but seemed by the time we got to 88 89 there wasn't a lot happening locally and so it did feel like we were just kind of doing this thing in a bit of a, a vacuum really it wasn't like we were part of a scene or anything so we were just kind of doing this thing that we wanted to do but it wasn't There wasn't a lot of context around us. In fact, I'm kind of struggling to remember really what much of what else was happening around us at that time. It wasn't like, you know, a lot of times bands come out of some scene where there's loads of other bands around. It didn't feel like that at the time, I don't think.
0: No, I think that's what's interesting about it. I mean, did you have a manifesto, so to speak, at the beginning of what you wanted to sound like?
1: Our manifesto was more that we wanted to put out an album. And that we didn't. We wanted to do our own thing before we'd interacted with other people's expectations of us, because we'd been in a band called the Boy Hairdressers. We didn't really do much. We put out a single, but you end up in a band where the band is kind of feels a bit too much like a concept rather than a rather than a reality. We wanted to more than anything just kind of make an album, go on tour, do stuff in the real world before we did our thing musically that we were talking about it, it became like, you know, a band that people would talk about. We wanted to have done something first. So we wanted to, we had this crazy idea we'd make an album and then we put it out and then it's like, we made the album, here we are. You know, we've got this thing. We don't need to say what the band is going to be like or what we yes. are going to do. It's like, we've already done it. You know, we'll play the songs live. It's dead simple. There's no there's no concept to it. You know, so that that was manifesto in a way was just to kind of do stuff yeah. rather than talk about stuff. And that was a
0: Catholic education. So you made that yeah. record and then he ended up putting that out on Paper House, which was a, an imprint of fire records at the time. And that's when there was a lot of interesting things going on with indie labels and imprints. And, you know, I was reading Richard King's book, How Soon Is Now? And you're you're kind of quite pivotal in that book, in a sense, because you were one of the bands that was talked about a lot, and particularly between... It felt like there was some sort of hotline going on between Glasgow and the US, where you had a bit of a buzz.
1: Yeah, and also yeah. The Catholic Education was uh, one of the early records put out by Matador Records. yeah, release on
2: Matador. Yeah. Yeah.
1: The good thing as well that we got that happening over there, kind of at the same time. And that yeah. made us look a bit more... Um, exotic, there was a a certain amount of exoticness both ways, you know, and I think we didn't really realize, say we went to New York in July 1990, you know, and we were just a bunch of guys from Glasgow in the 20s and I think, I don't think you realize when you're young and you kind of don't care that it's actually quite attractive to people, you know, people kind of got interested, but we were just kind of concentrating and, oh wow, we're in New York and oh wow, we're doing all this stuff, we were just kind of we had no career plan other than we'd made the album, we'd done the mm-hmm. thing we wanted to do, we put it out, and then we were we had achieved success at that moment because we were in New York. You know, as soon as we put the album out, as soon as we got in the back of the van, went on tour, went to we were in a whatever some stolen car someone had given us in New York, we were driving up and down the East Coast of uh, the US. We had achieved the success that we wanted in that <laughs> moment. It wasn't like we were there looking to do something else we had already arrived at what we wanted to do.
0: Keith here, thanks for listening to The Art of Longevity. I hope you're enjoying the conversation so far. Please tell your friends, listen back to the other episodes and don't forget to subscribe on whatever podcast platform you listen to. Back to the conversation. Is that how Thurston Moore came across you? Because he then invited you to support Sonic Youth in Europe, didn't they? We met
2: first on that trip. The reason that that came about was the... So the guy who ran Paperhouse Records is a guy called Dave Barker. And Dave had put out, um, or was in the process of putting out an album or some music uh, by a band called Gumball, who had as a member a guy called Don Fleming, who we were introduced to. Um, and we... And Don ended up uh, producing a bandwagon-esque album. And Don... Uh, Was good friends with Thurston Moore, and they were all part of that kind of New York scene at the time. Don was also involved in Half Japanese, Jad Fair, and uh, all those people too. But we uh, met Thurston uh, and Sonic Youth probably on that first trip, actually, to New York. Yeah, yeah. And we sort of hung out with them a bit. We met Yola Tango, actually. We met, our first show, proper show in New York, was at CBGB as part of the Matador launch night. But the night before that, we played in a little rehearsal space and we met um, Yola Tango that night. We've been friends with them ever since, you know?
0: Yeah, that's what you were saying, Raymond, is the exoticism in a way. There seemed to be a connection between you and those bands and it was that pre grunge era. It was getting quite exciting.
2: That also partly came through Stephen Pastel's connections with Calvin Johnson and K-Records uh, out in Washington State. Actually, Stephen had released a Beat Happening album on his uh, 53rd and 3rd label, and I actually... I guess you could call me tour manager. I there at the Beat, Hamming, Beat Hamming's first tour of the UK. I was kind of the tour manager. I couldn't drive and I had so someone else doing the driving and I just basically found them places, you know, to, floors to sleep on, you know. But um, there was a connection there. And then Calvin put out the Vaseline's record in uh, the US. And so that was one of the initial connections. And, of course, the K Records was out in Washington where the grunge thing, sub-pop, was happening. And that's how we kind of met Nirvana and those people for the first time, too. So, yeah, it was a kind of direct line between Glasgow, Washington, and New York in the middle. And London wasn't really part of it at that point, anyway. Other than, I would say, Dave Barker, of course, was in London, and that was an important part for us. But 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 we had our initial success in the, the U.S., think I've remembered that properly, pretty much.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it. And, you know, Kurt Cobain famously was a fan of the Vaseline's first, then he was a fan yeah. of yours, because, I mean, they, you know, he played the Vaseline song on their MTV album and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it was an exciting time. So just being there at the very, in the very heart of it, in a sense, is quite interesting for me to explore with you, because you then obviously went on to sign with Creation Records, so there was a there's a bit of a journey to be had there. But... At the same time, you were signed to a major in the US, Geffen Records.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah we spoke to, you know, we, there was a possibility of us doing another album with Matador, but they were pretty small at the time and we weren't people of means or whatever. So if we wanted to keep the band going, we had to get some funds in from somewhere to stay alive and to be able to make another record. And so, yeah, we did, well, we recorded the bandwagon esque album. Before, actually, before we signed to Matador, eh, signed to Creation or we signed to Geffen, we made the album first and we were talking to people as we went along. And we had this whole mad circus going on that dated back to our first trip to New York in July 1990, where all these US majors got interested in us. And we had a New York lawyer called Richard Grable. We had all this stuff going on and I was I'd be talking to Richard on the phone, you know, and I was living in a tower block council house my with my mum and dad and Mary Hill in Glasgow talking to, you know, my, you know, my mum would be like, Oh, that's your lawyer on the phone, you know. You know, so it was all a bit unreal. And I'd be talking to this guy in New York and in, in his office about these major label deals. And at the time I didn't have enough money to get the train to for us to go to rehearsals or whatever. We were really skimped. Uh, but we'd known Alan McGee you know, creation and all that, because when we were in the boy hairdressers, there was actually some talk about possibly doing something with creation, uh, before the boy hairdressers split up. And when you like, you know, Bobby and stuff, and I think we'd been talking to Bobby Gillespie and said, Oh, we're looking for another label, whatever. And I think Alan got in touch, Bobby told Alan and Alan got in touch, said, I didn't think you'd be available. Then we, but that all felt really natural doing it with, uh, Alan and Dick and creation and stuff. And that was, that was great, but we didn't actually conclude, those arrangements until after we've made the band Margaret album. We have this thing where we like to make the record first and then yeah. any kind of deal stuff, do it afterwards so that no one's got, you know, we're just kind of only thinking about the the record. And afterwards someone says, hey, if you don't like it, don't don't bother, you know. Because that's how the band started, we've tried to keep it going that way as far as possible so that nobody tries to interfere with your process. Because it's like if you don't like the record, don't worry about it. We'll pay for it and, uh, you know, we'll get someone else to put it out who does like it.
0: Yeah. And again, but with Bandwagon Est, it seemed that the US was the place that took to it first. I mean, it was sort of one of those records that was in every college kid's dorm and, and it was doing well on college radio and all of that, wasn't it?
2: No, I think I think partly DGC was kind of hot at the time, but St. Sonic, Nirvana had happened and, uh, so I think they, they, it was a lot easier for them to get us places that we may not have been. We, I mean, we did Saturday Night Live, which is kind of nuts, but um, that would obviously been part of the deal to get Nirvana on there or whatever, or you know. So, uh, but it was that it was yeah, it was amazing to do that. But so yeah, we did, and I think we, because the label was hot, but bands associated with it uh, got maybe a bit more press than they might have been. Then Spin made our album album of the year. We always we find that funny because the time Stephen Daly, who was the drummer in Orange just was I think the reviews editor at Spin. <laughs> we we always think that maybe <laughs> Stephen kind of strong armed some of the journalists to pick our album, but but maybe they liked. I don't know. Who knows? But anyway, we, yeah, we seem to get we we seemed, we did pretty well with that album.
0: Well, I mean, point being, it was it was up there, wasn't it, with those great albums of that year? It was on all those lists, whether it was number one or top ten or.
2: For sure, yeah, it was actually it's um, which w- was great. Again, you know, unexpected. Uh, we like so we never have any expectations, so really, really great to be for that to happen. For the record,
1: I, I don't know if that translated to sales as
2: such. You know, Um
1: I think we did okay, but not compared to the likes of Nirvana who yeah. were selling millions of albums. But I think yeah. because Nirvana were selling millions of albums, I think there were some people that thought, well, maybe we could do the same. You know. Mm. But we didn't, but we didn't have an expectation <laughs> yeah. that suddenly we were going to be, because before people would only look at bands that might sell millions of albums being like Bon Jovi or something, not like, not Nirvana or mm-hmm. Sonic Youth or something, you know?
0: Yeah, it was before that whole scene just took off and went huge. But I mean, so you had pretty low expectations anyway, you know, as you say, you would live in the dream already after a Catholic yeah. education because you'd made a record and then you were signed to creation but then you did see all these bands around you including later oasis of course just become massive was there a feeling that hey we should be there or was there pressure for labels to try and get you at that level
2: yeah no i think um there's not a lot you can do to control that you either it either picks up traction and people go with it and the way that uh, that happened to oasis it became the thing to people like the record i suppose too you know and uh, just kind of snowballed from there. But that's, you know, um, AR people can't predict that. I mean, they make get one of those away for every hundred bands they sign. It's difficult to quantify exactly what makes a record become massive, you know, or whatever. But we had no expectation of, of that at all. But, you know, and so we weren't disappointed because we didn't expect it. We weren't planning to be
1: the biggest band in the world. I think as well, we've been quite lucky over the years at being... Having a perception of us as underachievers, while at the same time we've actually done okay. <laughs> you know, you know, it's, it's, it's better, I think, to be thought of as as a band that should have been much more successful than than the other way around. You know, yeah, we just kind of blow their own fur or whatever around other people's expectations, whether high or low or whatever. We just it's just this kind of noise around us. You know, we just kind of keep doing our thing. It's like even you think of the, the narratives around, as I talked to earlier, around um, bands and uh, what records were like. And it's like even thinking of the recent The Beatles Get Back thing, you know, and it was like, yeah, they were all fighting with each other in the studio and it was terrible and it was depressing or whatever. Then you watch the Get Back thing and you think, they are absolutely amazing and they look like they're really working together really well, you know. But in terms of success or no success or whatever, we've kind of gone along and, you know, I suppose we're still maybe slightly boggled that after ambition in nineteen eighty was to put an album out here we are thirty three years later talking about it all, you know, and still doing it and we're just about to, you know, get in the van tomorrow and go off and do it again. Thankfully, people still want to come and see us.
0: Yeah, there's a line in the song In Our Dreams, which is we lived the dream but we never knew. And it's sort of as you said, Norman, you can't really control it. You
2: can't at all, you you know, it's it's not up to you whether your record becomes successful. It's up to a number of different factors, you know, and, you know, the stars aligning or whatever, you know, but there's no point worrying about it. The, the important thing to do as a musician is think about, in a way, I mean, and not that even if you ever think about the, your legacy, right, but all you're going to have at the end of the day, the end of the whole thing, that even if you've got loads of money in the bank, right, you're going to be dead at some point. So all you'll leave behind really is your music, you know. The music that you made and that should always be the most important thing, that's all that matters really as a musician you know, but at least at the end of the day if you have um, integrity or whatever and you do are honest and do the best work that you
0: can then you'll have that, you know It sounds like neither of you got attached to the idea of that, having that big success, even though people believed that you might get it labels believe you might get it and you saw it around you was that the case for the rest of the band? Were you just philosophical about it?
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean we were I mean, there is an element of it. You know, it's not quite the you know the George Best thing of like I'm drinking champagne with uh, Miss World in a, a hotel room and someone's like saying where did it all go wrong? <laughs> you know, <laughs> you, you know we we do think we've been pretty lucky. You know, compared to there's lots of people we still and we do still spend a bit of time and money making records and that's the thing we're still happy to do that and for years that's been. Our money, and it started being our money, and it's our money now, and we are quite happy to to take a bet on ourselves.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And we're not really looking for other people to fund our lifestyle or whatever, you know?
0: That must have been a crucial point, because you formed your own label, p and I think you must have been one of the very early bands to do that, because you'd had an amazing run. You had Grand Prix, Songs from Northern Britain, and then Howdy, which I think is a really strong album, which was made under a major label, because Sony had bought Creation at that time. And then after all that, you were sort of still, you were a bit high and dry. So it was man-made a reset? How did you go through the process of kind of forming your own label and saying, look, let's just do it for ourselves from
1: here? Well, well, basically, with the Howdy album, we made that, we were on Creation. And then towards the end of that process of making that album, Creation ended, and then we ended up on Columbia, we kind of fell into their lap because they'd taken over, but didn't really feel it didn't feel like a home to us. Then after that, there was still a kind of contractual obligation album left over, and we reached an agreement with them that we would just do a compilation album with them and record three new songs for that. They, we didn't want to do a whole new album with them, and they didn't necessarily want to pay to make a whole new album with us. So we agreed that we would put that out, and then we would go back to just doing their own thing. Again, for us, it's like, okay, we're making a new album. Have we got some money in the bank to pay for that? Yeah, let's go to Chicago and make an album. We'll figure out what to do with it afterwards. It's the same kind of naive view that we've taken all along. We have no thought about how it's going to come out or where it's going to come out. And then after the end of that, we'll finish the record. I think someone from Ian Dutt from Vital distribution, got in touch, they said, oh, we're doing this thing, it's kind of like a label services thing do you want to do, we could do this on your own label, and, you know, and we oh, yeah, yeah, that sounds really good, and then Merge, sent it to Merge Records in the, in, in the US, and we'd known the Mac and Laura from Super Chunk since 1990, uh, and said, hey, you, you know, do you want like to put this record out, and they said, yeah, and we're still working with Merge Records now, and yeah, it was really simple, we you know we we kind like to we're going to try and find the simple path forward to get to where we need to go
0: I mean looking back on it, it was the best decision you could have made because it was back in the early days of label services and strong albums ever since I mean they're every five years so they're not coming around thick and fast we're, <laughs>
1: we're trying we're trying to speed up on that now you know okay <laughs> I think it's because that's how our band started the idea that we just Go into the studio and we're paying for it all ourselves. Well, that's no big deal because that's what that's what we did from the start. Mm. I think some bands might balk at thinking we oh, were always to, uh, and we don't even set a budget. We just decide what we want to go, go and do and try and find the uh, find the money for it. You know, so far it's worked out. So It's getting harder to make money out of records, but we're not going to say let's make a cheap. Album, so we can make more money. We don't think that way. We just think, what's the album we want to make? We're going to make it, and we're just going kind to of make it happen. Then we think about the money afterwards.
0: The art of longevity is a team effort. The show is produced by the Song Sommelier that's me, with Project Melody. It's audio engineered and edited by Audio Culture. Our amazing cover art is by the wonderful Nick Clark. And original music for the show is by andrew james johnson was there ever a moment from that point on so it's 2005 from man-made where you thought we've had enough of this we can't quite find a way forward or did you just not think about that you just carried on
2: yeah, it's pretty straightforward in that sense it's, um we've always been able to find the money to make an album and uh I can't see that changing. Actually, it's a, but uh, you know the only way the band in a, in a way will end is if we feel that any one of us feels that we don't want to do it anymore. or We haven't got any ideas. If we make an album, I think we'd be honest with ourselves if we do some recording and we don't think it's up to scratch. I don't. Uh, we we won't put it out. You know. The other way we look at the band is it's only a band. This is just a thing that we do. We get together, make songs, we put them out. as this thing? You know. We uh, we don't really think that far ahead. Really, I suppose do we? We just kind of.
1: Yeah, and I, I think sometimes as well, someone makes an announcement, oh, the band has ended. Mm-hmm. And as part of you think, well, so what? Just to put another <laughs> record out. <laughs> yeah. You know, who cares? It's not the Beatles, you know? Yeah. There are a million bands and a million people out there making records. It's not necessarily what the the world needs, you know, but it's what we need to do. We feel a need to do this thing. This is, for whatever reason, this thing we do, that's, we feel this kind of, need to do it is, but if we stop feeling that need to do it or feeling like a plight, like we feel excited about doing it we just kind of won't do it we probably wouldn't make any big announcement about it it's just like well do you think they'll make another record and then a few years will go by and people will say nah they probably won't <laughs> you know and that'll be <laughs> it <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah I guess one of the secrets of longevity if it's a, a secret or a lesson learned is just is not to get attached to the industry metrics and markers of success you know keep on doing it because you enjoy doing it but also you've got a fan base who enjoy what you do and you you've got that right so i guess every time you've made a record you are touring it for a long time in many many countries and the, and the fans are out there
2: i think another aspect of longevity is it's about the, the personalities isn't it you know it's you have to kind of go on with each other i think you can't be around for a long time without having been Having some kind of uh, being sympathetic personality wise or whatever, we've been lucky in that sense, you know. Um, there haven't really been tantrums or whatever in the band or whatever, everything gets on pretty well.
0: It feels like it because a lot of bands do get to a place as well where their relationship is very business like. That would not be us, we've never, no. we're never going
1: to do that. That's not going to happen, you know. And we've, we've never, I mean, good luck to them. There's lots of bands put out a couple albums then split up and 25 years later they get back together again maybe because they can make some money or whatever and you know I wouldn't criticise anyone for that but that's we've never split up or whatever it's felt even though people from the outside looking in think well they spent five years between an album surely they went away and then the the band kind of stopped or whatever but it doesn't really it's kind of felt like a continuous thing for us you know but again we, we just kind of live by our own expectations of what we want to do and we're just Success for us is thinking being in in a rehearsal room in a studio working on something, we think, yeah, this this feels really good. That was really good. And it's that moment of feeling that fulfillment of doing something musically. You know, we're kind of together business enough to get the shit done that we need to do. You just do it in the background. It's not a focus for us, you know. We just do that stuff to get it out of the way so we can do the thing that we want to do is like feeling good about being those people, four or five people in a room playing something and not seeing it and talking about it and feeling like you're creating something that has some kind of worth that might be worth sharing with the rest of the world. The other stuff beyond that is just, it's like washing the dishes or something. It's just something you have to do.
0: Where you've been really lucky is you've got all the time in the world to make those albums since man made, as I said, they're the albums I've enjoyed. They're always strong. So you can take your time making them where, you know, there's a pressure on bands to just keep making music constantly and putting stuff out there constantly in case they're forgotten about. You've obviously got beyond that point. There's a resurgence of guitar bands now. Many of them would look at teenage fan club and see you as role models musically and for the way you've done things. What do you say to them? What do you pass on?
2: Only advice I would give to anyone is just do what you feel is right. That it will be right, you know. Do your own thing, be yourself. I've never been one for saying, "Go, yeah, you know, you need, you should really think about telling people what to do musically." Just do what comes naturally. Do what feels right. You'll be happy. At least you'll be happy, even if it's not successful. You'll be happy that what you did is something that you like or whatever, you know.
1: There's other people that would give people advice. And they say, Don't you want to be successful? And it's like, No, we do want to be successful. That's why I'm saying we're not going to do that crap thing you're asking us to do because we know better. <laughs> we know better than you about what constitutes success for us. But also, this was you, you're saying, Norman, do what you want to do, do what makes you feel right to do, but also don't do anything that doesn't feel right. Yeah. And I think no, kind of, yeah. our rule is if instinctively it feels you shouldn't do it, trust your instincts and don't do something because it's the idea that, oh no, other people will advise you to do things. And by listening to their advice, you will be successful in spite of your instinctive reaction that it's wrong. Those are other people that ask people to do things. If it doesn't work for you, you will just move on to another band. But there are lots of people out there that think they're geniuses, but they're not. But I think as a band, as an artist or whatever, if you do something in spite of instinctively it feels wrong, that's failure right there, and you've created it yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, if you listen to someone else telling you what to do and you go along with it in spite of feeling that it's wrong, then you've failed, but you've kind of did it to yourself. (laughs) You know, as in like people saying, oh, my manager wanted me to do that, so I did that and all that. So, well, you you don't have to do what people tell you what to do, and if you go along with what someone else says to do, it's your own failure. Don't blame anyone else for it, you know?
0: From the very beginning, you took your influences and you kind of merged them into something that was your sound. I mean, over recent years, we've got into streaming and and there's a relationship between Teenage Fan Club and a lot of modern bands. I mean, where do you take your influences from now, do you think?
2: All around, the environment, music that you hear, conversations that you have, things that you read in the newspapers or whatever, that's pretty much... You know, the same places they always were. The one thing we would say, though, is that when you are young, yeah, you bands are the sum of their influences when they start, you know. No one arrives fully formed, you know, and that's fine. When we started, we were, the first album, we were listening to Exile and Main Street and uh, Sonic Youth. We liked Love as well, and, you know, and then I suppose you sort of combine those things and do your own kind of version of those. And then eventually you find out what you're good at and it becomes your thing, you know. Um, but in terms of musical inspiration, to, you know, just, yeah, life and the environment.
1: Yeah, it's like everything, I think as well, in terms of inspiration, if you, in terms of coming kind of up the songs and stuff, you just have to give yourself the space to be self-indulgent. You shouldn't have to go looking for inspiration. It's kind of already in you, you know. You just have to sit down and play guitar or play piano or mess around and it's there. Musically, it's everything you've ever heard in your life.
0: You're about to go on tour. It's been a long time since you did that. Going to see you in, in London at the Union Chapel. Have you played there before, by the way?
1: No, we haven't, no, yes. no.
0: Yeah. Is that going to be deliberately more mellow when you get there, or do you, you're not going to change the set for the venue?
1: We might need to see what the acoustics are like at the Check. you know? Yeah. I, suppose, I suppose it's going to place so you might be able to put in a couple of extra songs of a certain kind of way that... We, we probably won't think about it too much, you know? I think it's quite a reverb Ch- there's obviously churchy space because it is a church
0: you know so we'll see how it goes can I put a bid in for Come With Me
1: we are still we'll still, uh, we'll still have to work that one out properly but yeah we'll see what we can do yeah why not
0: yeah it would sound beautiful there that's for sure well look what's next beyond the tour what is next for Teenage Fan Club well recording you know we'll look to make new music you know um, but right now we're
2: focused on the tour obviously this is, it's exciting for us to go and do that again but yeah wh- one thing leads into another you go on tour and then you'll be looking through. We, we want to do, put more music out soon. You know, we talked earlier about an album every five years. And that has been. We've done that for quite a number of years. We want to, you know, do something about that. And we'd like to make new music and have that out soon because that that also allows us to tour more often, you know. And like I say, this is what we do now. Well, I suppose it has been. We're very more acutely aware of that. Maybe also the older you get, you just sort of want to make the most of the time that you have. I'm not not planning to, you know, become deceased anytime soon. But you know, you want to, you know, just think. Okay, well, listen, we'll, you know, it's like we have the opportunity to go out and play, make music. We're very fortunate to be able to do that. So you may as well make the most of
0: that. Well, I mean, to your point, though, longevity and mortality are connected, right? And it is about enjoying every day. And I think, you know, just in recent times where we've lost really, really key musicians and there's been a lot of of sadness in the world, that is important. It's important for you to keep doing it for your fan base as well.
1: Yeah, because we, I mean, you know, not to dwell on the concept of death, but it's something that we normally do talk about. Let's do this thing and enjoy it because we're alive. We can't do it when we're dead. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, we are aware of mortality. You do have to remember that you're going to die because it's easy to forget. (laughs) It's part of the human experience that you kind of, you know, whether humans are the only species that are aware of their own mortality, but it's also part of the human experience to try to not think about it too much. I think musicians
0: and artists, especially though, because it's partly your job to remind the rest of us. You know, I really do feel that way. And that's why we come to shows and we put records on. Yeah, it's a
2: record. It's a recording, you know. Yeah, it's a at rec- a moment. You're recording a moment in time. When you hear music from the past, you can sort of usually know where you were when that music was being made. The, you know, nostalgia is a big part of music. You know? Yeah,
0: and you, you've made classic records. Uh, you know, you've been really, really important to music's culture, and I think we're very grateful for that and glad to see you still around and thriving and looking forward to to carrying on. So it's been absolutely fabulous to talk with you and uh good luck with the tour we'll see you in london and uh whatever you do next look forward to to hearing it Great stuff. thanks a thank lot you. Thank, you. thank you thank you cheers guys